Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, you're a weirdo, but you're our kind of weirdo. Hi, guys. Hi guys! Welcome to this latest episode of Slaughter, the podcast. Um, we have some news for you today. Uh, this episode, as well as being our latest, is actually going to be our last episode for the foreseeable. Yeah, so we've had quite a lot going on. I mean, you've probably noticed that we've been a bit more absent on the socials. Is that what people say nowadays? Yeah. Um, we've both got some news. So I am 22 weeks pregnant. Yay, she's going to have a baby. Um, and at the start of this year, I got engaged and we'll be starting a wedding. And we've both got a lot more responsibility in our jobs. And Well. <laughs> well, until you for a bit, leave. For a bit. Um, but I just think, as you'll have noticed, our upload schedule has been definitely disturbed and we just got to the point where actually we don't, we can't deliver the content that our listeners deserve as regularly as they would like it. So we're not saying it's forever, but we're not putting a time period on it. Yes. At the minute, there are no plans to restart, but that we haven't fallen out. Well. <laughs> <laughs> not that she's told me. <laughs> there is no secret drama to it, though. Um, no. At all, just a change in life circumstances, and we have absolutely loved the last three years. I've loved getting to spend so much time with my friend every week. <laughs> I mean, once I got over the fact that we're not like the most famous podcast out there, I've still really loved it, and you guys have been such a fabulous. Um, load of fans and we do have a last episode for you so we're not just gonna put this message out like we've we've got one more murder each one more to go to share with you today so i think we should just get started yeah have a listen to this okay so i am going to be telling you about the murder of Teresa de simone it's quite a famous one but i didn't know it very well I feel like by now people could play Slaughter Bingo and one of the things they would say is, it's a well-known case, but we've never heard of it. I think because it was a bit overshadowed by, because it was this 1979, it was kind of in the heat of the Yorkshire Ripper. Okay. So um, that kind of comes up a bit actually. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, the victim, Teresa. I don't know if it's Teresa or Teresa. Treza. Um, Treza. But she was born in 1957 and she was an only child. 
Her parents separated when she was young and her mother remarried. Um, she was quite a shy child, but she did have quite a lot of few friends. And she kind of just went through school, sort of like under the radar. And then she got a job as a clerk at the gas board as her main job. But um, she was pretty hardworking. She wanted to pay for her own car. So she got a job in a bar a couple of nights a week as well. And she wanted to meet some friends that way. I think you kind of do get a bit of a social life when you work at a bar, don't you? Definitely. You get a few regulars that come on down. People just... Everyone who comes up is inclined to chat with you. Like, yeah. they're all really happy to see you. They're like, give me the alcohol. <laughs> yeah. I love you. You're the best. You <laughs> gave me the alcohol. Exactly. So she got a job at a place called Tom Tackle. And this is all in Southampton. So December 5th, 1979, the bar closes at 11pm. And Teresa usually stays on, like, cashes up and like gets rid of the regulars it's like drink up and but this night she left dead on time because her friend jenny was there because it was jenny's birthday and they both wanted to go out dancing but they were only going to go for a couple of hours because it was a work night so they both had work the next day so jenny is at the bar and then they leave together and anthony pocock um closes up alone he's the owner and Teresa and jenny then drive even though it's only a short distance really um, in Jenny's car to the local club. Okay. And then, um, so they left Teresa's car at the Tom Tackle. The plan is that they're going to go out, have a couple of hours dancing, go back to get the car, and then they'll both drive home. I'm going to say, this started out really low key. Like, we've got work in the morning, <laughs> just a couple of drinks. Oh, fuck it. Let's drive to the club and go dancing. <laughs> no. But um, neither were drinking. They were just like sober night, just having to have a bit of a dance. So, they went see that's because it's the 70s and there must have been dance routines you don't need to feel self-conscious about dancing when everyone knows the moves i mean i'm calling it the club but it was very much called the disco in every <laughs> every document i looked i just can't bring myself to say down it. to the discotheque exactly it's just so like 50s dad isn't it <laughs> um so both Teresa and jenny left and then at uh, the bar or the club um, just before one o'clock and they drove the half a mile back to Tom Tackle and Jenny parks up right near um, Teresa's car, says goodbye and she drives off. So Teresa gets out, she gets her keys out from her bag um, and then climbs in the car and she's about to start the engine when a young man knocks on the window and just points at his wrist like what's the time? Now it's like one o'clock in the morning, bit weird, but she thinks, oh, he looks super young. I don't know. Like, yeah. They're outside this. the pub. Maybe he's thinking like, are you open? Are you closed? Maybe. Yeah. So she rolls down the window to tell him and he grabs her wrist <gasps> and reaches in and unlocks the door, um, doing like the little pull button yeah. and then um, opens it and pushes her into the car and gets into the driver's seat. I imagine it being the 70s. It's kind of like, do you know the whole dr- like front seat is like one seat yeah like you don't have a gap do you so he pushes her along gets in the driver's seat um and then he slams the door behind him enough say like local residents actually hear they reported hearing the door slam Mm. um and then he grabs her by the throat because obviously she's screaming and begins pulling at her clothes like her exposes her breast and then pulls her into the back of the car rapes her and then strangles her to death horrific really graphic i mean there's there's more to it but there's no need for me to go into the gory details but it's like it's a violent attack it's nasty so Teresa's mother knows 
immediately the next morning when she gets up and Teresa's not home, something is wrong. This is not like her at all. Um, so she sends her husband to the Tom Tackle and he sort of pulls up and then looks in the car park and sees that her car's still there. But he doesn't go over and look at it. He just, I guess he just assumes she's left it there. She's gone somewhere. So he drives home and tells mum that she'd left the car there, but he doesn't know where she is. And then at uh, 10 a.m., the owner, Anthony Pocock, comes back and he um, arrives to sort of unlock the pub and get ready for some deliveries. And he, he's quite surprised that her car is still there and actually it's blocking the spot for the delivery truck. So he thinks, oh, that's kind of annoying. I'm going to go over and just see maybe if I can roll it because she's probably yeah. at her day job now anyway. There's no point phoning her. So he gets over to the car and looks in the back and he can see Teresa's body, partly clothed, covered in blood, bruises and he phones the police immediately so police confirm obviously she's been murdered and the murder didn't happen quickly either so it wasn't like a quick strangulation obviously um they could tell from the bruising and also there was like foam around her mouth that um it'd been she'd been sort of like strangled to near death and then it'd been released multiple times before she was finally killed which was awful and it's then, surprising that he hasn't made any attempt to hide the body. None at all. A lot of sort of serial killers that will do to avoid being caught will at least try and bury it in some sort of shit or dump it in a woods yeah. or something. Like, but this is pre-DNA as well. Like, it's just... Oh, okay, like, what are you going to do? Yeah, like, I... Clearly, it's someone who doesn't know her. And they just think, well, well, <laughs> tough shit. Um, so... Um, also semen is found on her body as well but all they can do is they can confirm from the blood and the blood found on her that um, the killer was either type A or type AB blood type okay. Teresa's murder having been a young woman and then a obviously savage brutal murder is heavily featured on the news for a few weeks but as I mentioned before Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper was killing women in large numbers so he committed two murders that year and obviously there was all the hype that went around that so press coverage um quickly quite quickly stopped on Teresa's murder uh, the police obviously continued to look into it but they didn't really have any leads there was no witness who'd seen anyone in particular um it was at her workplace um but then a man called Sean Hodgson who was a prisoner at Wandsworth prison confesses to a murder at the Tom Tackle in Southampton. Oh. So I'm going to tell you a bit about him. So Sean was born in Ireland, but he grew up in Durham. Um, he began to get involved in criminal activity, mostly stealing about age 11, and he was sent to Borstal. He left there as a teenager, repeatedly arrested, repeatedly in trouble for the law, um, stealing cars, owning weapons. Um, he also got in trouble for having sex with a minor. So that kind of was classed as rape because it was deemed she couldn't give consent. Yeah. Um, he was diagnosed with a personality disorder, which I still don't really understand. Sounds like he's got that the full mean. set. What's a personality disorder? Does it just mean... Like borderline? You're a dick. Or antisocial personality disorder. You yeah, know. like APD, I guess. Yeah. Just generic sociopath. Yeah. Um, and a compulsive liar. And he also took a lot of drugs. So on the day of Teresa's murder, he could actually be placed in Southampton. He'd arrived and he'd booked into a hostel and he'd been arrested for theft within 48 hours. 
So sometime between being in the hostel and being arrested again. He was already up to no good. <laughs> yeah. Um, after he was arrested, um, he had actually been asked about the murder immediately and he'd blamed someone that he knew. But they looked into this and seen that the man that he blamed had a, an O group blood type. So he was mm. sort of ruled out. So although Sean was odd, they didn't really have any reason, like they'd arrest him for theft. There's no reason to say, oh, he must be the murderer as well. So, you know, this was months before his confession. So on December the 11th, 1980, a year after the murder, Sean Hodgson had visited the prison chaplain at Wandsworth. Um, he was from a Catholic family. I mean, he's Irish, so no surprise. And he said he was being tormented by nightmares of the face of a woman he'd killed a year ago in Southampton. So the chaplain couldn't actually tell anyone at that point because the confessional booth is sacred. So you can't actually... Which is really shocking, I guess. But I guess if you didn't have that, no one would tell them anything. That is true. I wonder how many really big I was gonna say I wonder how many secrets Catholic priests know about but I'm sure they've got <laughs> I don't really want to know no um yeah no but I wonder like that would be a real burden to live with if you were one of the good priests under yeah someone confessed a murder to you so then Sean confessed the the next day to a prison officer who obviously was allowed to tell people and then he wrote a note stating the location had been the Tom Tackle. So That's so, such an odd name as well, and so like <laughs> yeah. so specific that... Yeah, absolutely. It, surely it's not a false confession. And it won't have been on the news... It was on the news. Recently, though, if it's a year later that he confessed. No, not necessarily. So, so Southampton police were contacted um, by the police officer and the, the police staff at the, the prison, um, and they arrived in london on the 15th december to interrogate sean now sean had confessed to a number of crimes prior to this so this what this wasn't his first confession and the other crimes he'd confessed to it just wasn't even possible that he would have been able to commit them so but in this case he actually obviously was in southampton and he had a lot of details of the crime so he knew that the death had been slow and that hadn't been reported in the press rather yeah. than a quick strangulation. Um, he had details of a watch that had been taken from Teresa's body and he mentioned himself having tried to sell a watch after the crime. Um, he also said how she'd gotten into the car by sitting at a certain angle and like swinging her legs in. And then when they spoke to Teresa's mother, she said, oh yeah, she did get into a car. Like that's like how she got in cars. With both the legs. Something, what will I, if we, if we died, what will I remember she about She went you? through the sunroof. <laughs> <laughs> the way she used to clamber into a car. I just <laughs> Um, so well, I'm convinced it's him now, so don't try and twist this on me. Because all right, I'm the end. <laughs> so after extensive interviews, Sean was taken to Southampton, um, and he gave details of where he'd disposed of Teresa's belongings. He also provided lots and lots of written confessions. So like he was like writing them in his cell. He handed some in. Some got found in his cell as well. And then on the 25th and the 27th of December. He also confessed to two other crimes, but no evidence of these crimes ever existed. 
So it's a bit weird because he's going into loads of detail about this crime and knows loads about it. But then he's just like randomly mentioning this. Like he said, oh, I, I murdered this gay guy. That it was just, there was no crime evidence. And those are that definitely false confessions. been murdered at all. So he continued to add details about Teresa's murder in the same time. Like he said that he'd thrown up in a certain area um, when he was walking away from the crime and that someone nearby um, had put on a light and looked over at him. And then a witness that they'd actually asked, that like they knew that someone had turned on a light in that area because they said, oh, I heard something and I turned on a light. Oh. So, so he must have. Yeah, there's loads of details. There's also... They found a pen in the car and said, have you seen this pen before? And he went, yeah, I've seen that pen. I've actually got a match. It's my pen. I've got another pen like that in green in my cell. And they went and looked in his cell and found that pen. And also they found a comb in the car and he said... And he had hair! (laughs) But he said, that's my comb. I've scratched my initials in it. So they looked at the comb. Right. If it had his initials, then case closed. It didn't have his initials, oh, but okay. it did have scratches that they said could, they weren't not his initials. <laughs> okay. But like there's some scratches for someone who's like maybe incompetent at scratching initials. Yeah. These are deliberate scratches. And also yes. it was the type of comb given to inmates. So, and he'd just been released, hadn't he? Like two days yeah. before this murder. So, and Sean's blood group was group A as well. So, based on all of that, I mean, they haven't actually got any, obviously, DNA proof. It's all circumstantial. But because of all this circumstantial evidence, they arrest Sean Hodgson and charge him with Teresa's rape and murder. Now, as trial approaches, which is quite quick, actually, because I think it mentioned that it was going to happen in January, he begins to backpedal. And he says he lied and that he's a fantasist and he's always making up that he's done these crimes. And he which he does, does do it for as well. Attention, which is true. But the the case wasn't totally just built on his confession. It was built on all these other evidence that admittedly he'd provided answers for. But it's like, how would he have known a lot of those details? Like, like you're saying, yeah. yeah, there's just no way. The trial lasted 15 days. Um, Sean actually refused to enter the witness box or be cross-examined. Um, he didn't. I, also, he didn't give an alibi. He didn't say, "Actually, no, I made it up. I was really here." Or he just said, "Forget I ever said anything." Yeah, or give any reasons for why he'd mentioned anything. So, with no alternative, it's only going to go one way anyway. So he was um, found guilty within three hours, and he received life in prison. So almost as soon as he received that sentence, he appealed on claims he had used details he had got from the TV or newspapers. And his lawyer also said, well, he'd guessed the other stuff, the stuff he couldn't have known, he guessed and he just happened to get lucky. Now, they didn't take that as they said, well, you're not telling us anything new there, so we're not going to accept that appeal. So Sean's in prison for this crime. While Sean's in prison, um, several other people make confessions to the murder. Um, One was a David Lace, young man, but there's a whole string of these same kind of confessions. There's like people with a long criminal record, give details of the crime, nothing you couldn't find that wasn't in the papers, lots of inaccuracies, like this particular guy um, didn't give the right number of doors to the car. He said it was a 
like a five door even though it was a three door um couldn't remember what she was wearing and six other people made similar confessions um but none of them were really taken that seriously because i mean these seven people can't have also killed Teresa. is you just what can you do with that and sean just just just, it must be him so in prison sean becomes very depressed he's actually transferred to broadmoor um and spent eight years there before returning to prison and then dna comes in good yeah let's hear the answer see now i'm starting to think actually i was a bit quick to jump the gun before because we've seen from making a murderer that I mean, we're saying, oh, he said he that's his comb and he says she died slowly. But we know that police can ask enough questions where or enough leading questions to make it seem like yeah. he came up with the details when he didn't really. And actually, yeah, there were no transcripts of his interviews. There were very detailed notes but there yeah. was there was no like um recording or video or anything like that and if you know if you know someone was strangled to death you could probably guess that it was a slow death is that really a a detail that we mm. didn't know but like the getting in the car and the car yeah, how and did the she get in the car though really <laughs> There's only really one way to get in the car. What, you either put your feet in first or your bum in first? She put both... She or put what, bum she in first. hands and knees on the seat and then crawls in. How can bum you... first, both feet swivel. She won't... That won't be the only person to do that. How do you get in the car? Left foot first, bum down, right foot second. Unless I'm getting in the passenger side, of course. That would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'd probably do the same. But a lot of people wearing a skirt. If you're wearing a skirt, you probably would do yeah. bum down swivel. Maybe. That's true. So Let's anyway. see what the DNA's got to it say. It must have been dead exciting when DNA came in because all these... If if you were like... I guess there weren't They're sleuths. like, finally, let's check everything. Yeah, like... I don't know. It's pretty exciting times. Anyway. If we have any listeners left after our initial message, they will be screaming right now, being like, "Just tell us the yeah. details. Like, the is it his up. DNA or not? Right? <laughs> We've tracked it out. Anyway, so obviously DNA comes in, and then there's a backlog of crimes that are being revisited. They're not going to just do all the crimes in the first month. It doesn't happen like that. And also, you've got to have someone there to ask for it. So eventually, one of Sean's lawyers puts in a crest and the, for semen samples to be tested from the murder. Sean is willing to provide DNA to provide a comparison. And then the Forensic Science Service, or FSS, who were basically kind of left with the job of doing DNA profiling. Like, they they collected DNA profiles for criminals, but also they would run the DNA scans. They said we can't find any of the samples. They're gone. So that's that's it for a while. So for 10 years, nothing happens. He's depressed in prison. No one looks into it. Then in 2008, he gets a new legal team. He's been in prison for years. Um, so a guy called Rag Chand is his lawyer. I mean, that's, I, I kind of think that name you could get away with in America, but... Rag Chand. In Britain... Yeah, not so much. Um, but he located evidence that actually was stored in the Midlands in an industrial park that the Forensic Science Service had not had on file. Um, and it had swabs from the murder. So still just like randomly in this 
I guess, police warehouse place. So they get their hands on these swabs. In 2009, it's confirmed that the DNA found on Teresa's body could not have been from Sean Hodgson. It's not a match. So his conviction is overturned. He served 27 years. I mean, I hate to say he asked for it, but he did ask for it uh, several times, verbally and in writing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Literally, that is... No one ever, like, said we're sorry because we were like, oh, you did kind of give us no choice, mate. (laughs) You did kind of bring this on yourself. Anyway, I don't know if you'll feel too sorry for him later anyway. Um, But... Now they had a murderer walking free, unpunished as well. The Forensic Science Service had DNA profiling on a lot of criminals that... Uh, so when, when someone was arrested um, in the 90, from the 1990s on, their DNA was kept on file. And if they uh, re-offended, it was put into the database, I think. So they called the kind of operation to find out who actually had been the killer, Operation Iceberg... Um, I don't know why. Uh, maybe the air can, like the heaters are broken in the building. Yeah. Like they were. Um, so no DNA match was found when they put it through the system. However, they did find a partial match. And when you get a partial match... Like a fraternal match? Yeah, it's likely it's someone related to the murderer. So there'll be like parts of the DNA that do match and parts don't because they've obviously they've got the same parents. So the FSS pulled the name and checked living family members and found that the a sister was still alive from the person who had this. So there's a bloke who'd been in, in trouble with the law loads of times and then his sister was still alive. So they went and met with her, asked for her DNA. She gave it over. And again, she was a partial match. So obviously it's not her. So there was one brother left of this three sibling group, but he was deceased, called David Lace. And David they looked L- at the comb <laughs> and it was a DL. <laughs> no, but David Lace, who 18 months after Teresa's murder, had confessed to it. <gasps> no. Yes. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. So David Williams was born in 1962 in Portsmouth and he had a troubled childhood, um, early involvement in criminal activity. He was actually given up for adoption because his family decided they couldn't cope with him um, and he ended up taking their last name. So he became David Lace, but he didn't really work very well in this adopted family either. He was kind of unruly. They couldn't cope with him. Um, so he was ordered to go live in a hostel as a young man, um, so age 17. And the problem with the hostel was it only worked if you agreed to live there. It wasn't like under lock and key. Mm. So on December 4th, day before the murder, 1979, he'd ransacked the other rooms, walked from the hostel 20 miles to Southampton. And he had stated in the confession that he'd made 18 months after the murder that he'd seen Jenny drop Therese Ruff and then he'd attacked her as she got into a car. But by the time that he'd confessed, Sean Hodgson had already been convicted of the crime and six others had confessed with no extra details they could provide. So he was just the seventh in a long string of people. Yeah, by that time, confessing. Like... Oh, another one. And also, 
he'd clearly shown that he couldn't cope outside of an institution and he clearly wanted to go back to prison. So you've got motive for lying as well. So he hadn't been taken seriously. No no one at any point really blamed the police for any of this because they were like, look, this guy's giving them an answer for everything. This guy doesn't know fuck all and wants to go back to prison. Like why it, it you just, it wouldn't make sense to. Yeah, you can say yeah. that they should have done something different, but common sense wouldn't, would dictate exactly. that everyone would make the same decision. Yeah. So in December 1988, Lace had actually told a lot of his friends he had great remorse for some of his previous actions. He'd got very depressed and um, he actually slashed his arms, put a bag over his head, swallowed sleeping tablets and he was found dead and was buried in Portsmouth. So he'd, um, yeah, he'd committed suicide, blaming like his his past actions and the fact they'd gone unpunished as part of that. So August 12th, 2009, um, after all this has come out... If he comes back from the dead, I'm going (laughs) to... My mind is already blown. (laughs) They go to his grave and they open it up and they take his DNA from the corpse and it's a perfect match. So they have their murderer. He was actually never found guilty because they didn't do a retrial, but it was pretty clear it was publicly reported that he was the murderer and Teresa's mother spoke out thanking the police for reinvestigating the crime now Sean was he was I mean he was um entitled to quite a lot of money I think they gave him 250,000 initially I'm not sure if he got any more after that I think just because the process for deciding how much he should be able to claim and his appeals and things can take a long time. So they just Mm. said, just bung him some money. And he bought a house quite close to where he'd grown up. And the press kind of like reported him as this innocent guy, poor guy. He went down for a crime he didn't commit. 27 years, he was punished for this. He was already in prison. Yeah, and also 2010. (laughs) I mean, he only got out in 2008. 2009 um 2010 he raped a woman with learning for fuck's sake a woman with learning difficulties apparently like she came forward and accused him of uh, rape he was found guilty of sexual assault in the end um he said it wasn't rape but yeah i did touch her up um so he received a community order so i i I don't i don't think that ever made the press but they were very kind of nice about him in, in the press and painted him as this innocent person. He also went to prison as well for drink driving, and he died in 2012, age 61. But it also remains a question, how the hell did he know all the details about the murder? Did he, like, did he happen across the crime scene? Is it Was it just really lucky guesses with this comb and the pen? And But then if they're showing him a pen and he says, yeah, I recognise it, like... Yeah, I know. It's that's all, it is done, isn't it? Oh, there's a comb. Yeah, that's mine. Like, he's just agreeing to things. Yeah, isn't he? that's true. Anyway, so I didn't tell you the name of the book that I used at the beginning because I didn't want you to know it was a miscarriage of justice. But the book's called Miscarriage of Justice, colon, The Murder of Teresa de Simone by Fergus Mason. And um, I've told you most of it, but it's a quick read. So if you fancy like a something for a train journey, yeah, I'd say uh, check it out. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Okay, so I'm going to um, tell you a story as it's our final one. Um, it's going to be another one. She's going to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's another one where um, the story is taken from the research of. Gordon Honeycomb, who wrote Secrets of the Black Museum. I have been... I feel like he should have, like, yes, some sort of investment in this podcast. I've been faithfully <laughs> using his content for many years now, amongst others, but he, he just writes brilliantly. His research is unparalleled. Uh, he's got Are two you marrying books. him? I'm not marrying him, but I feel like now I can just plug him shamelessly because I have loved his books. They're really interesting. Nice short chapters on different people. Um... And like I say, really good research because he's had access to the Black Museum, basically. So he's got all the stuff. So um, if you're feeling sad at the loss of Slaughter, I would buy his books on Amazon because they're really good reads. <laughs> but you don't need to read this chapter about Gunther Podola or Gunther Podola. He was born in Berlin in 1929. Um, he was the only child of a banker. Uh, he was good at school. He played the piano, seemed like a nice kid. Um, but life in Germany after World War One was already incredibly hard. Um, there was huge dissatisfaction over the loss of the war and financial crisis following the Treaty of Versailles. It left many of the citizens angry, who were really keen for a strong leader to make Germany great again, of course. There's a lot of post-World War One and post-World War Two murders that are really interesting because there's something needs... To, there's some research needs to be done. There's obviously a link between people who've lived through a war and then who go on to commit murders, like the psychological effects of living through wartime. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been explored fully, I don't think. Um, 
but so I think it's hard to really relate. I think, was it Peaky Blinders that did explore? <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to relate to this to Gunther fully because I think actually we can't know too much about his state of mind because it's just so alien to live in a situation like that where yeah like the level of like i just remember the little pictures in your history book at school where the kids were playing with wheelbarrows of money because it's just worthless Mm. um all sorts of crazy things but so by world war ii then um gunther was in his adolescence and he was just his playground was basically roaming the streets of the heavily bombed capital city um and like many young men he found structure, order, belonging as part of the Hitler youth um, and is actually described as being fanatical, but I think that's part of the the rules of being in it. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing was pretty fanatical. Um, so he was a Nazi. Well, he was in the Hitler youth. I think that's fair to say. I don't think it's quite fair to say that he was a Nazi as such. Okay, so the two are not this one and the same, necessarily. Yeah, because I think a lot of the young kids, it's like... They were just indoctrinated, weren't yeah. they? Is that okay. a bit too kind? I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, there's other bad things that happened to him. Because obviously, yes, he was a German. But perhaps due to his youth at the time, I think you could count him as maybe at least partially one of the victims of the war or some of the effects of the war. He lost his father, um, who was killed in Stalingrad. And then in 1945, when the war ended, as the Russian forces entered Berlin, Gunther's tower block was raided. All of the men who lived in it were taken out um, and were shot. And many of the women were raped. And Gunther's mother was included in that. So he's had some incredibly traumatic experiences as a child. Um, So he was still a teenager when the war ended um, and Gunther would spend the next few years of his life once again living in post-war poverty as he ended up living in um, Soviet-controlled East Berlin. So um, he began to build some semblance of a a settled life. He set up home with a lover named Ruth Quant and they had a son together who they named Mickey. However, in 1952 the internal border between East and West Germany officially closed. So the Berlin Wall was built in um, 61, I want to say. Um, And until then, although they'd been the two separate sides, you could still pass relatively freely between them. But in 1952, they were putting an end to it and closing that border. So um, though Gunther couldn't really have predicted all the trauma that was going to come with the Berlin Wall. He knew enough about the Soviet forces to know that, right, now we've got to get out of East Berlin. It's not uh, before the stricter laws come. So Podola successfully fled the German Democratic Republic, but he did so without Ruth and his son. He emigrated to Canada and lived there for six years, um, but he didn't lead an honest life. Um, He was charged with theft and burglary and all told he spent about a total of a year in prison. Um, On his release, Podola was then deported back to Germany. Um, And in 1958, he spent some time in Dusseldorf before once again seeking a new life overseas, but this time in England. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, true crime. (laughs) I was going to say, she's just like forgotten all the rules today. It's the last one. I don't give a shit. (laughs) Don't know, but fish. Yeah, so he came to England. So um, although like 
so late 60s there would still have been a bit of post-war prejudice against a German immigrant coming to live in London I would say definitely maybe not a threat to his life but I think people wouldn't have been like chomping at the bit to give him a job and make friends with him um so he arrived in London in the May 1959 and he sort of fashioned himself as this generically European gangster um he lived in Soho and he went by the name of Mike Colato um, so definitely Mike Galato. Yeah, I think he was trying to go for a little bit of a mobster <laughs> vibe. That's what he wanted everyone to think of him anyway. Um, hey, and- it's Mikey Galato coming in for a drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he'd lived in Canada for quite a long, for like six years as a young man. A, a lot of people said that he did speak with an American Canadian accent when he wanted to. So I think he was doing a that. little bit of like... I pick up an accent so yeah. fast. Six years <laughs> Yeah. Um, and as Gordon said, he made a living by, quote, various legitimate, though shady, activities. So maybe some sort of like a scam here and there, a bit of wheeling and dealing. Um, but as in Canada, Podola also sought to supplement his legal earnings by burgling houses at night. I mean, it, it didn't take him long. The 3rd of July, so he's only been here a couple of months in 1959, Podola burgled a flat in South Kensington, which belonged to a model named Mrs. Vern Schiffman. Um, he took some of her jewellery and furs all together, totaled about £2,000 worth of stuff at the time he took. I think Podola must have been impressed by the apartment and the wealth of what he had. So following the burglary, he felt, I'm going to rinse this woman for a bit more than I've already got. Um, So a few days after the burglary, Mrs. Schiffman received a letter claiming um, to have come from a private detective called Mr. Levine, who said that he had compromising photographs and tapes of her and that the cost of protecting her reputation would be $500. She didn't, she was like, I've not done anything. They're obviously bullshitting. So she didn't respond at all. So then um, she received a phone call from someone claiming to be Mr. Fisher, and she then contacted the police and said, someone is definitely trying to blackmail me. I've had this burglary. So then the next day after his first First phone call, 13th of July, Podola called Mrs. Schiffman, again claiming to be this Mr. Fisher, who was working on behalf of the Mr. Levine from before. And he was saying, look, let's just get the ball rolling with this payment, what we're going to do about it. Because she'd now informed the police, they had thought it wise to tap the phone line of the flat for when he next contacted him. So Mrs. Schiffman was prepared and she was able to keep Podola on the line for a good 15 minutes while police traced the phone call to a phone box in South Kensington Underground Station. So at 3.50pm, while they were still on the line, Mrs. Schiffman heard Podola call out to someone and then heard the sound of a scuffle. And then the next voice she heard was an officer who told her that he was Detective Sergeant Purdy. Basically, if you hear from me again, I'm the real deal. So DS Raymond Purdy had arrived at the telephone box with DS John Sandford from Chelsea Police Station. Um, The two officers had dragged Podola from the box and they began escorting him above ground to the waiting police car. 
but as they tried to negotiate the stairs out of the tube station, Podola managed to break free from the officer's grip and made a run for it. Gunther Podola then ran into a block of flats not far from the tube station and just hid behind a pillar to try and wait them out. Um, but the two unarmed detectives, Purdy and Sanford, caught up with Podola once again and entered the flat and arrested him. So um, DS Purdy ordered Podola to sit on this marble windowsill and he stood in front of him keeping watching him while DS Sanford crossed the hallway so that he could ring the bell for the caretaker um, to sort of either go and fetch the police there's lots of few things some people said he went to fetch the police car some people say rang the caretaker so that the caretaker could either go and alert the police to come and give them back up so they've got no radio phone any no 1950s they don't have they need someone to yeah and i think they didn't want to risk the two of them walking with him from the flats to the car in case he gave them the slip again yeah because he's like if he's quite a big guy it can take up to like six months to take down like a... Yeah, I think he was a slippery little bastard, to be honest. <laughs> um, so while Dear Sanford was sort of turned around, like away from the two of them, um, Padola took out a gun that he had hidden oh, on his shit. person. Oh, shit, they didn't check him first. No. Ugh. And he shot Raymond Purdy Fuck. in the chest and then scarpered. So by the time Sanford had run over to his colleague and then out of the building, there was no sign of Padola at all. Diaz Purdy was a 40-year-old married father of three. Did I? Um, yeah, basically. Oh. He'd called his wife earlier in the day saying he was going to be late. He was supposed to have finished his shift, but just as he was going, they'd had this phone call saying, all right, we've got the blackmailer on the line. Yeah. And so he was like, all right, I'll come along and help out. Oh. So... It was a really unfortunate turn of events. But yes, the bullet had gone straight into his heart and had killed him. Um, D.S. Sanford gave a description of Purdy's killer. Um, he said, quote, A man about 30, height 5 foot 10 inches, slim build, brown hair, speaking with an American accent, last seen Canadian. wearing dark glasses, a light sports coat, grey trousers and suede shoes. I mean, that's uh, a lot of different looks in one outfit. <laughs> It is. And then something was saying like he was wearing dark glasses because it was one of the hottest summers for of the decade or something. But still with trousers, a yeah. sports coat, suede shoes in the summer. That's insane. And he's running around. They were able, however, to collect Padola's fingerprints from the windowsill in the hallway where he'd been ordered to sit. Um, and the police also had possession of an address book, which was originally found on the body of D.S. Purdy and had been sent to his widow. Um, but when she looked at it, she was like, this isn't ours, and returned it to the station. So they realised it must have belonged to his killer and he'd confiscated it from him as evidence. So when they looked through the contacts in this address book, it didn't have the name of him in it. It didn't have Padola's name in it anywhere, so they still didn't know who he was. Um, but the contacts, some were German, some were Canadian. So they started ringing a few of the people and asking them if they knew someone by this description. And they all either, they gave various aliases that he had, but right. they all said that they knew someone who matched the killer. So they knew yeah. it belonged to the killer. Meanwhile, there's another little thing going off. Um, we had a story before about like a really vigilant hotel manager and how they managed to, because of their concern yeah, for yeah. someone, it managed to catch a killer. So 
In this one, the manager of the Claremont House Hotel, he'd called the police because one of his guests, caught going by the name of Paul Kamei, was acting strangely. And he thought he's hiding out in the hotel. He's like, he's come home, he's not left the room for two days, making weird noises in there. Like, what? I need you to come and check on him. Making weird noises. <laughs> I added that bit, I don't know. <laughs> I was say, like... Well, I was like, what else is acting strangely? But he thought he was hiding in there. <laughs> He was making some noise. He doesn't think he's dead. He thinks he's alive in there. Yeah. Like, hiding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the police showed um, the manager a photograph that they'd received from Canada of the German immigrant Gunther Podola. Um, and the manager confirmed that, yeah, that's Paul Kamei who's hiding in his room. So on Thursday, the 16th of July police went to Podola's hotel room and banged on the door. Now, there's a bit of conflicting stories. Not conflicting, but there's the account of the police and then there's other people who've suggested that maybe they were acting inappropriately. I don't think in the end it really matters because they knew he killed a a police officer. So the police said that they heard a click behind the door and because they were finding looking for a man who'd shot a police officer, they assumed that this was the click of a gun being cocked. So the officers charged the door and sort of crushed Padola underneath it. Not to death, but he was badly injured. As they said- Well, they knocked it off its hinges and it fell on him. Yeah, there's a guy, um, DS Chambers, who just was a really, really big 16 stone guy. He just like- shoulder barged the door and it fell on top of this guy i mean i imagine a lot of these people were colleagues of purdy's and like they really want to make sure he gets caught yeah i mean padola was unarmed um they later found in the hotel attic they found the gun that had been used to shoot ds purdy and it had been wrapped in a newspaper from the day of the um, murder um we know that padola's face was badly bruised and cut he had really black eyes that stayed for a long time there's photographs you can see and he's always got these black eyes um and the police put a jacket over his head as they left the hotel and put him in a car now you can see that on photographs as well you could say it's just uh so they don't reveal his identity before he's charged or you could say it's to hide the injuries that they've given him oh yeah um but can you kind of blame them for opening the door and giving him a quick punch punch in the face? They didn't stab him. They didn't kill him. He just had a bit of a bashed up face. And if yeah. they barged the door, they probably did hit him. I kind of feel like if you kill a police officer, you kind of know that you're fucked. Like, they're not going to go easy on you. Yeah. Like, if you're ever watching a drama, you're like, oh my God, they're going to kill a police officer. That's like basically the worst the worst of the worst but still again in their defense as well it's not like they went out to try and give him a beating like they thought he had a weapon because they knew that he'd shot someone so you could they would be right in thinking he could be armed behind there we need to use force so i don't i'm not like judging anyone for it no i'm just saying like did you punch him though (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of fine um so but neither Padola nor his lawyers complained about, really, about his pl- uh, treatment by the police. Um, he was examined by a doctor half an hour after his arrival at Chelsea Police Station. Um, and Padola presented signs of being in severe shock. He was shivering. He was really dazed. Um, 
so much so that he was taken to hospital the next day um, where he was looked over by doctors completely. They found no signs of fractures or internal bleeding. So it's, they really didn't give him like the beating of his life at all. Um, I think it probably was the door. Maybe a little quick punch underneath the door. That's it. Yeah. Um, but again, they commented on the fact that Podola was in real shock, like clinical shock, um, and he wasn't fully aware of his surroundings at all. Um, so over the next few days, as he began to recover in hospital, um, he was there for about four days, Podola claimed to have almost no memory of his life at all before the arrest. What? Like anything. Didn't know the names of his... Like amnesia. Yeah, complete yeah. amnesia. Didn't know the names of his family. Didn't know where he lived. Whoa. Didn't know where he'd been. Nothing about his life he could tell them. Um, he asked... It was noted that he asked a lot of questions about his situation, sort of where am I? Why am I here? But it was said that it was noted as being interesting that he never asked why he was chained to the bed like why he was handcuffed so you think you think it's all bullshit and he it was heavily disputed um on the 20th of july there began a trial um but it wasn't the full murder trial basically they needed to have a trial to determine whether or not he was fit to stand trial for murder yeah um, he was transported to Brixton Prison where he was staying while they were awaiting this um, for the next few weeks. He was seen by numerous doctors um, for both the defence and the prosecution to try and ascertain if this memory loss was real or not. And on the 10th of September, um, they were to present this evidence to a judge. So really... Um, because basically, if he couldn't remember anything at all, he wasn't able to mount a defence. And if he couldn't put forward, if he couldn't defend himself, then he couldn't be tried for murder. Even if Sandford had witnessed him kill someone, say, because you have that right to a defence. So, yeah, it's a really weird one. I don't, it's, it was mm. a groundbreaking case in that it's one of the first times this really taken place because we know he did it, but... Is that enough to do it without letting him stand up for himself, basically? Um, so Podola's lawyer presented the findings of five doctors who all felt that the amnesia was most likely real. They said that, yes, you can fake something, but he, the things that he did remember compared to things that he didn't were really consistent with other cases of amnesia. So, right. for example, it's his long-term biographical memory that's gone but things like acquired skills he still had so like he could still speak english he could still knew the rules to games he could play games mm. but it was more sort of just details about his own life that he couldn't remember and they're saying actually that's generally how it happens with the parts of the brain that are affected yeah. it's not just like you're wiped clean so then like i said they were there's evidence on the other side doctors saying that it definitely was. Um, he was fit to stand trial for murder. This was all just a ploy. Um, but eventually the jury at the time decided that amnesia had not been fully established and that he was fit to stand trial. So a new trial began on the 24th of September with the same lawyers, same judge, but a different jury. Um, so to try and make it as fair as possible. Um, Podola did go into the witness stand but basically just got up there and made it a statement, made a statement about the fact that 
I can't defend myself. I don't know anything about this event. Yeah. Um, his lawyers, similarly, they made statements to say, look, we have no defense here. Like he can't tell us anything so we can't present anything to you and we're just trying sure. to hammer it home um however ds sandford testified for the prosecution and was saying i saw him shoot ts purdy so that was pretty much that to be honest the jury at the time felt that even though he wasn't able to make a defense it didn't matter in the long run really so gunther well, i guess you can't just let him go it's either not guilty for reason of insanity or guilty really like and yeah because before well this is why it was such an important case because reason of insanity there were slight they were trying to basically make an exception to the fact that he was insane but the definition of by reason of insanity is that you aren't making the choice to kill based in reason but in this case he would have made he would have known his reasons right around at the time it's since then he just can't remember them he can't stand trial he could he he wasn't insane to commit the murder but he's now insane yeah in in a sort of like sense to plead yeah so it is weird but i guess if he had a good defense maybe he would have avoided a death penalty or he would have had mitigating steps like there could have been other parts to it we've had kate like we've looked at i know we've looked at cases before where it's been a long time before it came to trial and then the person at that point is like quite old and frail and stuff usually they've sort of reached a deal i think yeah I think maybe the other side of it is that it was a police officer that was killed. Yeah. Might have been another side of this. But Gunther Bedola was sentenced to death and he was hanged at Wandsworth Whoa. Prison in November 1959. He was the last person to be hanged for killing a police officer. Okay. So not the last person to kill one or the last person to be hanged, but yeah, he's got an award on there somewhere. He's got something. <laughs> and that is the last murderer to be discussed by me on the Slaughter Podcast. Not forever. I said for the near future. Oh, okay, right. Let me sentence. Okay, so we really loved it, you guys, and we really want to thank um, a lot of you for, and it's particularly if you've listened right from the beginning. I mean, yeah. good going. Or like listened to them all uh, and got this far. Um, thank you so much to everyone who supported us on Patreon. I have, I have like, stopped taking your money now <laughs> but thank you so yeah. much it's really meant like you know when i've been having a really tired week i thought people are paying for this shit i gotta yeah. i gotta suck it up it's still overwhelming to think that people ever wanted to do that and they, yeah they enjoyed it so much so we will always appreciate um you guys for thinking so highly of us <laughs> And uh, thank you for all the people who left reviews. You can still leave us reviews. Obviously, the podcast is going to stay up. You can listen to old episodes. Um, we're just not going to be producing any content, at least for now. Um, you know, one of us or both of us might come back at some point. Um, but also, true crime's pretty busy these days. It is. There's some fabulous people out there that we can recommend you go listen to. I'm not going to name them now. Bitches, <laughs> this is our moment. <laughs> But there's other stuff for you. Go read some Gordon Honeycomb. <laughs> um, but yeah, and our Facebook group, they've been amazing. The people that came to us when we had our meetup, oh, and yeah. I still see their little their names pop up in our group. Um, you are the best. That's cute. Yeah, we're gonna miss you all. Um, but you can we'll still have the email up, uh thought of the podcast at gmail.com and uh, we're not gonna like shut down the Twitter or the Instagram. I'm not sure how 
often I'll be on them, but um, they're not going to disappear forever. Yeah. Um. So, uh, take care, guys, and uh, until we meet again. Uh, bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> oh gosh. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.